Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. The difficulty with grieving someone you don't know is I get to live in this idealized version of what he could have been because I never got to know who he really was. Because how you adapt to stress now is probably a pattern you're going to carry into adulthood. I've got to stay in movement, like in Nemo, stay swimming. And now I'm like, you know what? I don't always have to swim. The saying, I don't see color, is so deeply damaging. If you don't see me as the identity I'm presenting as, you can't identify with the struggles I'm going to face that you may not have to face in your life. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. My guest today is a woman of wonder, beauty, inspiration, and mega superpowers, a force for change and is living the legacy her dad would have been so proud of. Today, I welcome the visionary role model, Candice Mama. Candice's dad, Lenak Maslow Mama, was brutally killed in a vicious and unjust time in her country, South Africa's history, when she was only an infant. She describes her memories of her father as nothing but compilations of different people's stories and pictures collected over time. What followed were years of deep-seated pain and agony of trying to comprehend her father's killing. She was sheltered from many of the intricate details of the incident for her own protection by her family, but her ever-inquisitive mind willed her to seek answers. Fortunately for her, she grew up in a house where reading and introspection were encouraged and allowed her to be able to contextualise her dad's tragic killing. So Candice then did what many of us would find the unthinkable. After almost 23 years after the death of her father, she visited his murderer in prison and forgave the man that took her father away from her when she was only eight months old. This one extremely brave act that she decided to share the experience of went viral and unknowingly has led Candice to lead a life helping and healing others through the act of forgiveness. Named Vogue's top most inspiring woman in the world, along with Michelle Obama and Malala, and also in the top 20 of African women by the UN, she is a TEDx speaker host of the podcast Coffee with Candice, mentor, and also the author of the powerfully moving book, Forgiveness Redefined. And she did all of this before turning 30. She has come to strongly believe that her biggest growth stemmed from overcoming her hardest times. It is my utmost honor to welcome the excellent Candice Mama to the Elevate podcast today. Thank you for coming, Candice. Hi, Romita. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Oh, well, this is a real honor of mine. I feel so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for taking that out of your busy schedule to be here and to help me understand a little bit more about your journey. And I honestly don't know where to begin. Your journey is full of so many emotions and uh, brings out so many heartwarming feelings for you and, and what you've been through, as I've explained in the introduction. And I normally start by asking my guests about describing themselves when they were a child, what words they might use to illustrate their childhood. And having read so much about your personal childhood journey, I don't know if few words will cut it or not, but I'm going to ask you anyway, have a challenge and tell me what you might say that would describe young Candice as a young girl. Oh, that is a great question. So three words, I think one would be curious. The other would be depressed um, and the other would be questioning, you know, and I think questioning and curious are similar, but I think they're different. I think you can be curious without being questioning, but I think my curiosity led me on a journey of wanting to know. I just, 
I was curious about a lot of things, about our mindsets, about, you know, my father. Um, and so I think those were the three things probably that I described myself. And there are great qualities to have. I think I refer to you as a very inquisitive person, which I think is interesting. And I think asking young girls to be curious learners within a life, whatever part of the journey they are, is always a really great way of educating oneself uh, rather than just learning academic material and regurgitating it. It's always nice to have those qualities. You also had a very unconventional upbringing. And as we've explained a little bit in the introduction as well, and your family life in your early years was quite unsettling. And you never really had one, especially in your early years, one kind of home with what we call a conventional, traditional family makeup. But I wonder if you look back on that period, and I think some of it, reading your book, which is amazing, what's it like for you now as an adult, though? Oh, thank you for that question, Ramit. It's such a good one, uh, because I'm always questioning, right? I'm always questioning where I am and how it relates back to that period. And so actually earlier this year, if you'd asked me that question, um, I mean, we're only in the second month, but in the beginning of the year, it would have been a very different answer to the one I'm giving you now. So at the beginning of the year, I, I live in Cape Town right now. And I remember feeling so settled. My life was so just calm and peaceful. And all of a sudden I had an urge to move to Portugal. And I was like, I'm moving to Portugal. And I just started doing the paperwork. And as I do, I just got into the rhythm. Then one day I asked myself, I just remember sitting down and being like, why are we moving? Like, why are we, why are we going to Portugal? Um, and because my career can be something that whereby I move anywhere, I can live anywhere in the world. I was like, is it just to cause disruption? And so I had to challenge myself to actually stay, to stay in a place of, as you said, comfort and stability, um, and also not get it confused with not growing, because I've always associated discomfort with growth, which I think is so important. However, I think that it can become an addictive thing to chase, because then we're always chasing and we never content. And so that's my journey this year getting content, getting balanced, but knowing when to do and trusting myself enough to know when it's time to act our act, but also knowing when to be calm and peaceful. Because I think what young ladies and everyone listening to the podcast need to realize is those years that they in it are the most you know, character building years because how you adapt to stress now is probably a pattern you're going to carry into adulthood, right? And so for me, my adaption was always around movement. I've got to stay in movement because if you like in Nemo or stay swimming. Um, and now I'm like, you know what? I don't always have to swim. Sometimes I can just rest. And I think that's been my biggest challenge. How interesting. And what a great reflection on your part to be able to do that. So can you tell me how old you were when you finally were moved into the home with your actual biological mother? Yeah, I was around the age of eight, I'd say around the age of, so I was transitioning into that home around the age of seven, but it was really at the age of eight that I started staying with my mother and like realizing the dynamic that would play out in that part of my life. Right. And before then you were with your grandma and great grandma living in more, <laughs> much more rural uh, parts of South Africa, doing things in the, in the wild and kind of being yeah. free. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it was very different. And I lived with, you know, it's a unique story in the sense that I've lived with almost all the matriarchs in my family, you know, and I'm, somehow they've each implanted something within me. So that's very cool. Yeah, in terms of female empowerment and what I do at Elevate, this your journey is very, very resonant with the idea that you've had such amazing female role models, I suppose. But maybe at the time you were questioning like you said, with your very inquisitive mind, so much about what other children's families look like or not so much. Did you ever have that? You know, Ramita, I think every young woman listening to this knows that no matter how, um, how much you try and like live your life and move through your own journey, you always observing, you're always assessing, you're always in some way comparing, right? That, oh, this person lives like this, this person lives like this, and I live like this. So I think I was always, you know, computing that, okay, 
I'm not living in the same way that other people are. Uh, and I think it only really struck me when I went to a new school. And I realized that, okay, not only do I stand out because it was a predominantly white school at the time, not only do I stand out because of my skin color, but I'm also standing out because of these different elements, right? I don't have a father. You're, not, you're supposed to know your mother from birth, you know, like all these small things really started to itch themselves in my brain. And I think, you know, if the studies to be proven correct, which is that we formulate who we are and how we're going to bond with people between the ages of birth and seven years old, uh, I'm pretty sure that that was a very crucial, you know, transition and confusing period. And that formed how I connect with people moving forward. Sure. When you finally did move in with your mom, it strikes me that your reflections of those time and your thinking around that time is full of maturity and so much empathic thinking. Because I, when I read what you write about that time, you think about your mother as a woman, maybe because of the age you're at now, but your relationship was with her was very different to most mother and daughter relationships. So it's not like when you finally met with her, you walked in and it was all kind of mummies making cookies with me. And no, it was very different. You were very, very um, careful to think back to your relationship and why it was the way it was. Um, because her relationship, you said, was strained with her parents, which then created a pattern for the way that she might have parented you. But you also mentioned that she was a, a woman in survival mode. And that when she finally did feel like she had the capacity to look after you and your brother, that she couldn't escape that survival mode and get into maternal mode. And I find this way of thinking about your mum so inspiring in so many ways, because I don't know if we ever do that as young children. We don't compartmentalize or think about the fact that your mother is more than one thing. And you did that so beautifully. But then, interestingly, you go on to explain that your childhood looked even more different to other children because you became like siblings in a shared house. And I would like to know a little bit what that was like for you and being a new family in this way, what the experience was like. Yeah, that's a great question, Ramita, because I think a lot of young people are experiencing some sort of friction with their parents. And I think when you're in it, it's so difficult to look at it from the outside looking in, right? And I don't want to act as though I always had that maturity, you know, <laughs> like I stepped into this new unit and I was like, I'm going to see this for the joyful experience it can be. It was not like that. Um, however, with distance, space and time and needing to heal myself and my bonds that I was creating in the world, I realized that it was so important to start looking at my mother as a human being outside of me and to look at myself as a human being outside of my mother. And so what I realized very early on is when I met my mom, one of the first things she made very clear is that we were not to call her mom. So there was never any confusion in my mind as to like, you know, are we going to be baking cookies? Not at all. And, and so I, I think with that separation already, I, I understood that I had to adapt to the environment I was coming into. And I think growing up, what we came to be was just this odd unit of like, you know, she took care of us, you know, from a provisional standpoint and security and safety, which was material safety point of view. However, from an emotional connection, uh, she just couldn't do it. She just couldn't do it for us. And, you know, as you said, I had to reflect on it and realize her path and her journey. So she couldn't connect with her mom. And then her husband is brutally murdered, you know. So I think her relationship with connection was very strained. And so that's how it played out for us in her raising us. There was always distance. There was always um, a part of us that knew that everything was kind of on rocky grounds, I'd say, <laughs> you know. So you kind of just had to go through school, you had to, you, you were taking yourself, you were taking care of yourself in an emotional capacity. Um, and you knew that at least you had a home and you could, you know, figure things out. So that's the kind of home I was raised in. Gosh, that's so much to put on a young girl of eight, nine, 10, going into teen years and the challenge that must have brought into your teen years, because that is sort of the next bit of your change and growth I think when a child is developing their identity and learning who they are and figuring out they are and yet you're you found your mom you're with your mom but you're you're not meant to call her mom because that must bring so much conflict in in one's mind and I think 
the fact that you're sitting here today. What's it like today with your mom? Do you still call her by her name? Yes, um, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I think I think that will be a lifelong thing. Um, You know, I think as human beings, we, you know, society tells us these are the relationships we should have with family. And I support that. I think if your family is healthy, I think if the individuals within the unit either have an ability to grow, they, um, they have an ability to understand and empathize and work with you as you reform your relationships and bonds, I think it's so important to put effort into them. I think, however, it is so important to not put pressure on, especially young women and young adults who have been through strenuous relationships with their parents. And as they age, they realize that, you know what, you may not be good for my mental well-being. Your character or the way you operate is just not good for my psyche and how I want to move through life. And therefore, I'm going to limit contact, you know. And so I've had to go through different phases where I've been like, okay, it's going to be fully encompassed. And then I had to start draining it back. And it wasn't something personal against my mom. It was just more so a choice for myself. And it was saying, you know what, I need to be an entity on my own. I need to define what love looks like for myself. I need to define my own journey. And that may not be productive with you being such a big role in my life. And so I've had to really figure out and walk that journey. And our relationship, I think, is moderately decent. So moderately decent. That's quite a way to describe it, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's respectful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you've chosen those words really carefully. I love, but I, you know, with all due respect, that's that's very kind of you to share. Thank you for for letting us into that part of your your growth and your development because it's it's so personal and it's. I realize I'm touching on things that are deeply deeply um you know and sometimes I'm sure painful too for for lots of us I lost my mom when I was 13 and um a lot of the things you say in and around figuring out who you are in and without people or with people or what you do with the memory of the people that you have is is really important so I wonder if you could talk to me about what you felt when you were in these schools and Yes, Lupita is one great example, but growing up for me, and I think Naomi, I'm a lot older than you, but Naomi Campbell was the only beautiful kind of colored person. There were no Indian girls in the thing. So I never, ever liked being um, darker than my white friends in Canada growing up. So I completely get that. But I wondered what, since you're the next generation and had a slightly different take on it, you could share that with us a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it is so important for people to understand that the saying, I don't see color is so deeply damaging because I know it comes from such a great place where it's like, I don't see color. So, you know, I don't see you as like a brown girl or a black girl or whatever the case is. However, if you don't see me as the identity I'm presenting as, then the issue is you can't identify with the struggles I'm going to face that you may not have to face in your life, you know? So I think it's so important that, as women of color, that we realize that this is a very new avenue for us, you know, earning the money we're earning, you know, getting to the places we get to in the world and also being embraced and being told that you can be your fullness um, is very new. And it still, you know, has certain connotations as like, you know, um, when a black woman or a woman of color uses their voice in an assertive way, it's not called assertive communication, it's called aggression, right? And so there's so many things young women have to subconsciously, and that's the dangerous part, have to adapt to and blend with in order to not really stand out in the entirety as the identity they are. And so coming back to my book and kind of grappling with my own identity, because within my family, my mom is mixed race. uh, So she translated you know as mixed and she had great hair and whatever you know um, and very sharpened features and my older brother and my younger brother are also very light-skinned and so I was the only woman of real like color and melanin and my grandmother was and my dad was but my dad had passed away and so to me beauty was your skin tone it was how light you are in the world and when I got to this new school Although there were other kids that were brown and black, you know, um, 
it was very interesting when I got questioned about my nationality and my race because I was like, but I'm black. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so that introduced the first layer of really questioning identity. What is it? How do I identify? Um, how do I move through the world? But more so, I, and I think this is the most important question for all young women out there, is how do you choose to identify? And how do you see yourself? Because we sometimes assume that the idea we have in our minds, because we don't really question and ask, is the reflection that the world sees of us. But I could have gone through my schooling age and been like, I'm a black girl, da 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 the whole time. But if people aren't receiving you the way you're choosing to identify, you need to question and ask and realize that, okay, the world receives me slightly differently. What does that mean for me? How do I choose to embrace it? And am I, you know, and which parts of myself am I rejecting? And I think those are such important questions to start asking and then start formulating how you want to be in the future. Again, it goes right back to having that inquisitive curiosity about how do you show up and really ingraining that in our girls I think that's really important to give them that questioning mindset and you know a lot of parents almost sometimes find it annoying when their kids are constantly asking questions but I would encourage any parents listening here to keep those questions coming it's such a wonderful way for young people to learn and really explore things around themselves including identity and forming yourself and who you are and a lot of young people are struggling, whether they've had the, the trauma of your childhood or not, which obviously you clearly had lots of things that were going on in your life. But there was some question I read about in your book, even around your name. Would you like to talk to me about that experience? Because you are Candice, but you were actually never called that until you were how old? And your teacher mentioned it in a, in a school registration uh, for, for the first time, which startled you. So I would love for you to talk to me a little bit about that. Yes, uh, I think that was really the rebirth of Cand like of me as an individual. I think that was the first time I was 14, I just got into a high school because in South Africa, the schooling system is from, uh, you go from grade one to grade seven, which is around the ages of about eight until about, um, I'd say 13. Then high school, you go to a different school, which is 14 to about 18. And so I remember I just started this new school and prior I was called Mpumi. So that was my name at home. That was the name I was referred to. You know, that was just how I identified in the world. And that was who I was. And I remember if it, I don't know if it was so much a conscious decision as it was a part rebellion, a part subconscious, but I started this new school. I wanted a new start. And I remember the teacher calling my first name, which is Candace, but I'd never used it before. And it was Cand and it was just by hearing my surname, I was like, oh, that's me. Um, <laughs> so it was Candace Mama. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with this, you know. And it became a moment where I actually chose who I wanted to be. And I've been that for a while now. So <laughs> oh, fantastic. Okay, one more quick question. And I'm, I'm, I know because I've got so much to ask you, but I want to ask you about the B team because I think a lot of teen girls will really relate to this and parents of children who are competitive in sports. You mentioned that the day you were dropped from the A team, you're a very sporty girl. You had a lot of physical energy and you're amazing at sports. That was part of who you were. Always on the A team and you were dropped. So when you started to unpack that a little bit in your book, you I think you reflected on this as more of a, but I used my sport and my accolades in sport to form who I am. And it was my identity. It was who Candice was. So could you talk to me a little bit about why you felt that pain was so great for you when you were put onto the BT? Oh, absolutely, Ramit. And I think it's important for all of us at any age. And I think that moment in time, that realization that, how much of who I was, which means how I received the love, how I received um, some sort of embrace or compassion or empathy from the world, or even being seen. Uh, I really tied to this identity, which I felt I could control, which was a sportsman. I was always a high achieving sportsman, right? And so when I was on the A team, it, it felt as though now in my head, I could logically define why I deserved love, why I deserve to be seen, why I deserve to be in the world, why I deserve to be worthy in my space, right? And I think when I got dropped to the B team, it was, it, that's what it felt. It was a collapse of all of those things 
that I had subconsciously tied to this thing that I didn't even think I was tying it to. But that's what really collapsed. It was that identification of, wait, if I'm not this, if I'm not identifying as this, then how am I going to get all of these emotional needs met? And so I think we do that. I think we do it so subconsciously when we're in our teen years and we just change it a little bit by the time we get into adulthood, whether it's chasing, becoming a CEO or a musician, whatever. And so for me, I'm very grateful that that acknowledgement came very early on where I was, you know, so attached to the emotional validation that came from being a high performer that I couldn't accept myself when I was a low performer. I didn't feel as I was worthy of love, uh, acknowledgement, you know, being seen in the world if I wasn't bringing uh, something worth receiving into the world. Candice, that has just left me feeling so emotional, my goodness. And you are just so, everything you say is so profound. It kind of took me right back to a quote that I had pulled out of your book that I want to keep in mind when I'm raising my own children. But you've written in your book, when we feel deprived of the oxygen of love as children, we constantly look for moments and things that rationally explain to us what we can change about ourselves. We look for access to that gas supply. Those words really resonated, really wrong. I mean, partly because I think I recognize now so much of my own childhood of what I did and how, I, and how that informed the 20-year-old and 30-year-old I became. It's now in my 40s, having done some of the work that you were really brave to do in your earlier years of your life, that I think you were able to come to these conclusions much quicker. And they are so important in shaping who we become, aren't they? So if we can get to young people not just girls, I mean, boys, anyone, we all need that uh, affirmation and that reminder, don't we? It's so important for so many of us. Um, there was a real pivotal time, a moment in your life and which no child should ever have to bear the burden of. And I'm, I'm so sorry that you did, Candice. Um, but I wouldn't mind if you, if you take us back to that day so that we can then move on to this topic around growing out of trauma and, and how we learn to cope with those things. You saw something that probably robbed you of your childhood innocence and probably and later was responsible for the diagnosis of depression. Um, if I'm wrong or can you correct me if I've interpreted any of this incorrectly and if you could talk to me a little bit about that and share with our listeners what that day was like for you. Absolutely. So it was actually around the age of nine. And I remember my mom had bought a book and this book was titled Into the Heart of Darkness. And I remember on this book was a picture of a couple of different men. But one day my mom had sat me down and she pointed at one man. He was wearing glasses and she pointed at him and said, this is the man who killed your father. And so I remember just getting a little more curious about why was my father killed? Why did he kill my father? You know, those kind of questions. However, every time we would have guests that would visit my family, my mom would send me to go get this book. And I'd run, get the book, take it to her, and she'd usher me out of the room really quickly. And every single time I was outside the room and people had turned to this page to tell them to turn to, I'd hear crying and screaming and hysteria coming from the room. And I remember thinking, what is in this book? And so I started playing outside the room every time, you know, people would come. And I heard the page number. So I quickly went and scribbled it down. And I just heard it was a picture of my father. And so at the time, I only owned about four or five pictures of my dad. So I was so interested to get a sixth one in there. And so I remember my mom was about to leave the house and I was really watching her as she was reversing out the driveway and I was home alone. And I quickly ran, you know, jumped on the same chair, grabbed the book and I sat on the edge of the bed. However, there was something, whether we want to call it spiritual or instinctive or intuitively, even at that young age that I felt as I was paging through the book, that something was not right here. And so I remember getting to the page number and Ramita, what I saw was a picture of my dad's burnt body clutching a steering wheel and his eyes were protruding. And it was something you would see in a CGI movie. And I remember just shutting the book really quickly. My heart was racing and I threw it at the back of the cupboard. And I ran to my room because tears were welling in my eyes. And I remember just being so afraid. And so many questions started raising through my mind. What did my dad do to deserve this? How could human beings 
do this to someone? You know, how did he die? Like all these questions, was he alive? Did he suffer? So I remember thinking all of these questions and it went on to inform the next few years into my teenage years that would then transpire and really form the person I am today. Gosh, Candice, it is so difficult to even hear that and you had to live it. So I can't even imagine what it was like for you. I can't pretend to say that I understand at all because I don't, but I, I do feel incredibly inspired by your remarkable uh, journey from that point and how you came through it. Um, and we're going to talk about how you dealt with grief because obviously at that moment you you hid it from your mom and I think one of the things I read it's again it takes me right back to me a little girl you were actually quite obviously traumatized by this photograph totally understandably but the first thing you said that came to your mind was oh goodness I'm going to get into trouble for looking at a book so I better put it back exactly how it was and make sure nobody catches me and then you completely let it go you never spoke about it with your mom for I mean it was something that did not come back in terms of being able to deal with that image that you saw for for years of of growing up so uh, such a huge amount of weight to carry as a young girl I can only empathize with how much energy and how much space it must have taken up in your conscious and subconscious mind so tell me what it was like for you then to understand what mourning your dad was like I would love for you to talk to me about that absolutely um and it actually comes back to shame and I think when I was reflecting and even writing that part of the book, it was really around the fact that I had to be honest and say, you know what? I was really angry. I was really angry at my dad and I was angry at the childhood. I felt as though he had deprived me of. I was angry at the decisions he took to have gotten into that place. I was angry that, you know, um, he didn't get to see me grow up. He wasn't there to protect me. He wasn't there, you know, for the life that he was supposed to be there for. And I think so many people go through this part of grief and they're so ashamed to speak about it. They're so ashamed that people are going to judge them for it, right? You can't, you're not allowed to be angry at someone who's passed on and being, you know, um, and was killed. And so I remember for me, I had to first accept it. I had to accept that I was angry. However, I also had to consolidate the fact that I was mourning someone I didn't know. And, you know, people have asked me this question before and they said, you know, but, you know, isn't it easier or more difficult that, you know, your father, you didn't know your father. And I say, it depends on how you look at it, because the difficulty with grieving someone you don't know is I get to create whoever I want it to be. So in my head, I'm never grieving the flawed, you know, annoying, um, you know, a suffocating whatever parent because he never got to embody any of that. He's a saint in my mind. So in, in, in essence, I'm grieving a saint, you know? And so I get to live in this idealized version of what he could have been because I never got to know who he really was. So that was really the journey I experienced. And that was really the process I had to take from accepting that I was angry and then moving through the stages of grief. And how do you tell people today in your work around forgiveness um, when they are experiencing grief? And I know the pandemic has been a great kind of reminder that everything we once knew may not be. And, and, and so you grieve lots of things in life. And a teenager may have lost, may, may, maybe losing a parent is not so common as a teen. You and I are obviously two, two women that understand that grief of, of not having one parent around. But I think those feelings around grief and understanding are things that we don't talk about enough with young people. Would you agree? I would agree. Uh, and I think it's because, you know, there's certain topics that people are afraid to touch on because they're so heavy, right? And people don't want to be in the presence or in the state of that because it, they don't know how to carry that weight. And so I think it's something we choose to kind of hide our heads from and be like, oh, you know, it's not happening to me. But I think for me, what I had to realize is the first step in 
any process, but especially in the grieving process, is you have to acknowledge that you are in pain. I think, you know, in the new age, which I absolutely love, I love the new, you know, law of attraction, mind power, I love all of that stuff. However, I think the biggest downfall of it is it doesn't allow you to acknowledge the real emotion that you're feeling at the time. And I think the first step is for young women, young people to really acknowledge, I'm in pain. I hate this. This is terrible. Like, you know, my life has changed. Like, I feel as though like my life is upside down and I don't know what to do and just get out everything, get it out, you know? And so it starts with acknowledge. Then it comes to allowing, allow yourself to feel, allow yourself to sit in those emotions, allow yourself to really just be in that state and be in that moment. And cry if you have to cry, you know, scream if you have to scream, go for boxing, go for a run, whatever it is that you need to do to allow those emotions. And when you've been in the state of allowing, then accept, accept that you are where you are. It has happened. You cannot change it. None of us can go back into the past and change what was. You have to accept that it happened the way it happened and it couldn't have happened any other way. Once you're in the acceptance mode, then you have to release it. You have to release the emotional attachment that you hold to that event. Because if we don't release that emotional attachment, what happens is we live in a cycle of re-traumatization. Because every time that incident, we think about it and we embody that emotion, it didn't happen once. Our body thinks of it as happening again and again and again. And unless you release the emotional attachment, not the memory, just the emotions attached to it, then you can't move forward then you can't rewrite, you can't redefine, you can't move forward, you can't, you know, figure out that, okay, this happened. It crumbled. The house has crumbled. The, you know, demolition crew has been here. Am I going to rebuild? Am I going to start clearing the rubble? Am I going to start rebuilding? Am I just going to watch it and just sit and cry for it for the next 10 years, hoping that someone is going to come rebuild this house? Or am I going to say, I always hated that damn kitchen. Now I'm going to rebuild a house that actually you know, embodies everything I want to stand for and everything I want out of my life. So that's how I would look at it as we move through these incredibly challenging and strange times. Yeah, thank you for that. You've led me beautifully onto my next section of questions around self-love, which I think you've just touched on beautifully. So you were a young teen going through all sorts of things that probably didn't accept and probably couldn't articulate, vocalize some of the pain you were in because you, A, you were alone when you discovered some of this, this truth about your, your father, but you call it instinctiveness that you knew you had to take charge. And I wonder how that relates in terms of resilience, which is a superpower that we talk about in the Elevate program. So I think there are two theories here that, you know, you're, because if you've had trauma and hardship in your life, therefore your resilience is they're in abundance because you've had to deal with things head on. Yet there are children who may not have had trauma, but they are going to have challenge in life and they will face adversity. And there's no way of running away from life that because life is messy. There is no perfect life at some point. And even if it isn't as huge as losing a parent or discovering something as awful as you had to as a young child, but adversity is, is going to be part of our life. And I wondered what your take on this is more because you were shaken and you had a panic attack. Maybe that was your big moment that allowed you to look back on it and think, okay, that's it. I was in hospital. I was in pain. My body is failing me. I've got to reevaluate this. And you were only 16. I was probably in my thirties before I had one of those whoa moments that you question what drove a very self-aware overburdened teenager to write a suicide letter and then accidentally dispose of it in front of a nosy friend. There was so much going on. You were obviously going through depression. You had your panic attacks and you were only 16. What was it for you that helped you then become this resilient person that looked back on your life and said, right, I'm taking charge and I'm going to fix this for myself. Yeah. You know, Ramita, I think the first thing I actually want to start at is that as human beings, I think it's so important to acknowledge that we are not in the pain Olympics. You know, I think sometimes it's easy to look at my life and be like, oh, Candace's story is huge. And then diminish your own pain and reality. And I think, you know, it comes from a well-meaning place, but like if she could do it, like 
you know, she went through all of this, then my pain shouldn't be as consequential and it shouldn't cripple me as much. And I should be a better person and I should, 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 should. And the truth is pain can only be judged on how it's experienced. If it crippled you when that first boyfriend you had left you, if, you know, your, your father not showing you love and being emotionally cold while living with you was the issue, whatever it is that you interpreted in your mind and life as pain and as painful and that has caused you to be the person you are today, that is a trauma. And so I think that's the first point I want to start at, that it is so important that we don't diminish our pain just because someone else has it worse. Because, you know, just because I ate today does not make you full. Like that's not, that is not how, you know, science, logic, life works. And so I think that's the biggest thing to note. And then when it comes to having suicidal thought, depression, and, you know, really moving through that, it's one of those things whereby you know, with mental health awareness and with suicidal ideation or as young women, you know, you're going through your hormonal changes. Young people, we're going through these hormonal changes. And I think for me, suicide was really an idea that I want to escape. I no longer want this because wherever I'm going cannot be as painful as what I'm experiencing. And, you know, living in an abusive home and then having my father having passed away and losing what I felt was my identity within sports and so on. I didn't see a day that could be brighter than that moment. I, I remember just thinking, I, I can't think that life gets easier than this. I can't think that I could actually move past this moment. And I think in that space, a lot of people will say to people in that frame of mind, just think more positively. You'll be fine. You know, things will get better. There's always, you know, light after the darkness. And I think what people should be saying to those people is, what is the core root of this? Where is this emptiness coming from? Where's this pain coming from? Because I think it's so easy to identify pain when it physically hurts us in our environment. To me, it was the palpitations and the hospitalization. But I think it's even more difficult when it, the pain's coming with, from within, when there's this deep-rooted emptiness and void that you can't fill, right? And for me, I realized it was lack of belonging. It was lack of love. It was lack of, you know, connection. And it was really feeling as though there is nothing to live for. I'll never connect. I'll never be loved. I'll never be able to do these things and feel. And in many ways, I think my younger brother was my saving grace because I needed to protect him. So I needed to look for something outside of myself to stay alive for while I sorted myself out. And something that really helped me, and I hope it will help a lot of young women out there, was listening to shows like this, you know, um, podcasts weren't a big thing then, but I remember it was like these odd like webinar kind of things um, that were just audio. And, you know, it's reading from people. Um, I discovered mind power and law of attraction and the secret. And although I have my issues with those movements, they really helped me start realizing that I had more power than I thought I did. I could actually make things happen. I, I might have had control over my life, right? And that's what we were speaking about earlier. So many young people feel as though they're constantly having to adjust to the external stimulus when all they need to learn to do is adjust from within. You need to just control your internal world and it will reflect on the external. Exactly. I mean, I think the other great thing that I picked up and I think a lot of young girls talk about is the idea that when you sometimes okay they come to the realization or their parents help them come to the realization that there is pain and it needs to be addressed but their automatic thought process is well let's see a therapist a psychologist a counselor and fix it and the expectation then turns on the not that they don't have a place but the idea then that somebody else will fix you rather than you doing the work that it takes to heal is something that I think we need to reframe for parents and and because I get it it's expensive and they put all this money at it and I think that's because a lot of of us think that well if I made the effort to come here and show up you need to do what it takes to fix me and I know you had a little tiny snippet of this experience as well the idea that 
If this happens, then I will be happy. If this happens, then I will get there. If the therapist tells me what to do, then I will do it. But actually, we can tell you lots of things, but until you, and I think it was this amazing monk that you might be, uh, went and met uh, that gave me this idea around uh, the idea of the monkey brain. You know, you can train your brain to think what you need it to think. So observe, do not run, he said to you. And I think that is just an incredibly important message to relay. Oh, I love that story. And it's one of my favorite stories in the book, actually, and in my life. Uh, you know, I think when we speak about meditation, it, it scares a lot of young people. I mean, it scares me and I'm 30. Um, so it's one of those things that, you know, we think we have to be in the solitude and stillness and just sit there. But what I think is the real core message of meditation is you do not need to attach to every thought that crosses your mind. Not every emotion is supposed to, you know, there's this popular saying that goes, always trust your feelings. And I completely disagree with that. I think observe your feelings, understand your feelings, know where your feelings are stemming from, but don't always believe your feelings because your feelings are using a computing system that got you to the place you were in the first place, right? And so it's using Intel, it adopted as a kid that this is what keeps us safe. This is what's right. This is how we communicate. And so your feelings will always speak to that. So rather observe, just look at your thoughts. Like, so something I think is so important and I'd really love to um, share this is number one, when you're feeling a feeling, say it out loud. You, you seem like a crazy person, but verbalize it. For example, I'm really feeling anxious. I'm really feeling anxious. Put it out there. Breathe. Okay. Why would I be feeling anxious? I'm not going to answer that right now. Let me just see what comes to mind. And I swear it seems so simple, but it is through the internalizing of the emotion that you, you feel as though you are the emotion. But when you take the emotion out of you and you say, here's anxiety, I am feeling it. This is where I am. What is this anxiety trying to tell me? Am I in danger? Am I making bad decisions? Am I scared? Then you get to observe it as an external party and not embody it. However, when you're trying to fix the same thing that is kind of driving you crazy, which is the mind with the mind, you just drive yourself in circles. And that's the one thing we love doing. No, if I just ruminate and think about it and think about it, then I'm going to get the answer. You can't go to the same programming that is causing the problem and ask it for a solution when you are part of it, right? So the best way to do it is write it out. And that's why journaling is effective. Write out the issue, write out the problem, write out the emotion, and then solve it as an external party, as an observer, instead of someone within it. So those are some things that I still do to today. Love it. I love it. You're right inside my Elevate program. You're right there giving it all back. So I, I'm, I'm very aligned with everything you're saying. I think that's hugely important. And the idea around permission to feel, feel them, allow yourself and then use the science. I, because my background is in science, I have a huge amount of where's the evidence for that feeling? You know, have you found it? Be a scientist, look for the evidence, see what if it's actually really true. Are you really that bad a person that you're not worthy of loving? You really don't have any friends? Let's look at all the people around you that do love you. And I think these things can help alleviate what we think we, need, we are believing about ourselves, which is important. You had the most incredible experience of meeting the man that did murder your father as brutally as he did. But you went through something incredibly monumental at this point in your life. You're 23 years old and you learned a lot. You know, I'm going to read a little passage again from your book, if you don't mind. You say not every person seeks to grow and change. Yes, in the process of forgiving, not every person who has committed the act against you accepts accountability for what they have done. So it can be infuriating trying to let go of anger and hatred towards someone who remains unchanged. However, when you allow someone who hurt you to get a rise out of you every time you see them, they have a hold on you. The saddest part is that whilst you are hoping that they will be affected, you are the one that is going through further into the darkness. And in time, it will affect you and your physical health. Ask me, I know. <laughs> but it's just beautiful. And I love what you say. And you speak so eloquently about it. So I think this would resonate with so many people who are having friendship issues, boyfriend issues, um, social media issues. Talk to me about how we can help young people go through this journey in a healthier way. Oh, yeah, I'd absolutely love to talk to that. You know, I think 
the biggest example I give to people is picture your soul, like your feeling body as a remote control. So we all have these pressure points that when people push on it, we react, right? When people say things to us, they ignite this emotion, this anger, this frustration, whatever it is. And so that means that you have given your internal computing system to someone else. Every time someone has the ability and the power to control your emotions, what you're really saying is I'm a puppet in your game. I'm a co-star in your movie. I am just a control. I exist in order for you to tell me what I should feel, do, and move forward with. And therefore, I have no autonomy over me as an individual. And so really, when we're going to healing and we're going to forgiveness, what you're really doing is saying, I refuse to play the supporting cast in your movie. I don't like the role you've cast me as. I don't like the character I play. I want to be the leading role in my own movie. And by doing that, what you're saying is, you know what? You did hurt me. What you did is wrong. And I'm not forgiving you for my, for you. I'm forgiving you for myself. I'm forgiving you so that I, when the next time you do something or the next time you try and push on that pressure point, I'm not going to be triggered by it. I'm not going to act out of character because I'm in my movie and I can assess this as what you are doing to me and not accept it as who I am. So that's really where I look at forgiveness and healing from, which is you have to take power and control over your own reality and your own life or else someone else does. And is that true for people that even haven't actually come to you to ask you for forgiveness? Absolutely. Even more so. Even more so. Because I think what we need to realize is reconciliation is the unification of you and the person who's agreed you. Forgiveness is the process of releasing the pain that is associated with what the person has done to you. So you need to go through forgiveness before you can even sit down with other person and say, okay, I forgive you. Or you don't even need that part for me. I think you need the part where you release yourself from your emotional prison. If you choose to reunite or reconcile with a person, that's a different story. But for me, forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. That's a brilliant way of looking at it. And if anyone listening to this would like to get a copy of your book that I've given a few excerpts from um i just all listeners know that i will link everything that we've talked about today including uh, candice's talks and the work that she does in the show notes but would you like to direct anyone listening to a particular website or anything for them to get more information on you amazing so if they want the book it's forgiveness redefined on amazon if they just want to connect with me, it's Candice Mama across the board, all platforms. And thank goodness my dad left me with that surname. It's so nice <laughs> and <yeah>, universal. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for being here. You're an absolute angel. I'm going to say thank you and let's keep this conversation going. You know, thank you so much. Firstly, thank you for having me here. I love the work that you do. I'm so happy that you wanted me to be a part of it. It's really an honor and a privilege been so beautiful spending this time with you and your community and that's everything from us today thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations i hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others if you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast i would also be hugely grateful i'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.